This podcast with Robert Franklin is brought to you by Dr. Rick Stevenson, the author of a new book entitled 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid. Please join Rick and Greg on podcast number 793 where they speak about Rick's fascinating journey called the 5,000 Day Project, where he has interviewed over 5,700 kids in an effort to learn more about their personal stories and what they want to express about their lives, both the good and not so good. Rick has captured through his new book, Stories and Insights for the Reader that will change their lives for the better. Rick calls his process guided visual journaling. I know you are going to enjoy this interesting and engaging interview with a filmmaker, philosopher, storyteller, and writer. If you want to learn more about Rick and 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid, please go to www.rickstevenson.com. That's R-I-C-K-S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy our featured podcast with Robert Franklin. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Robert Franklin is joining us. And Robert, you're joining us from Atlanta today, correct? That's correct. A yeah. rainy day in Atlanta. Aha. Uh-huh. How are things down there? Uh, have things settled down with uh, protests? Uh, things are settling down. Curfew has been lifted, and I think we're kind of getting back to a peaceful state. Well, we are, we are honored to have uh, Robert on the show. And Robert has a new book out called Moral Leadership. And he was referred to me by my good friend, Doug Holliday. And I had the pleasure of actually hearing Robert speak on a Path North recent Zoom call, uh, which was just wonderful. And we wanted to bring Robert on Inside Personal Growth because we know the topic he's going to be talking about is at the forefront of anyone's mind who has interest in leadership or politics or wants to know what's going on in this country. And Robert is one of those individuals. Robert, I'm going to tell him a bit about you. Um, In his position uh, as inaugural James T. and Bertha R. Lane Chair, uh, Moral Leadership. Um, It's the Reverend Robert M. Franklin, Jr., He challenges his students to explore the concept of moral leadership in the 21st century in different cultures and contexts in the United States and around the world. Now in his second term at Emory, um, Robert is the former Presidential Distinguished Professor of Social Ethics and a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion, both at Emory, and was also the founding director of Uh, the Chandler Black Church Studies Program from 1989 to 1995. In addition to his role, which he began in 2014, uh, Robert is a senior advisor to the Emory University president, as well as for the community of diversity at Emory. He was also the director of the religious department Um, and his bio goes on and on and on. And I encourage you, we'll put a link to his website, which he's actually redoing right now. 
But definitely this is an easy read. Look, not a lot of pages, folks. You could uh, certainly pick up a copy of this. We'll put a link at Amazon uh, to Moral Leadership. Um, Robert, you yourself have a very, 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 um, I want to just say, interesting story. And I think our stories are really so important, as Doug said. And you mentioned in the preface of the book that you came of age in the 60s on the south side of Chicago, and you cite a soundtrack uh, from Nina Simone, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. Um, obviously, as a black man in the United States and representing, hopefully, all black people today, Robert, I want you to tell a little about your upbringing and the history to kind of set the stage for our interview because, you know, look, if you took our white, black, ethnic diversity out of this picture, uh, the discrimination has been longstanding. We obviously understand that. Uh, but you had a great upbringing, and this kind of turned you in a different direction completely. Um, and I love the story, so I'd love you to tell it. Well, thanks very much, Greg. It's a real pleasure to be with you and your viewers uh, today. I was, uh, I came of age, you know, Americans love coming of age stories, coming of age novels is an entire genre. And I suppose I was in many ways influenced by the, uh, the great writers of the time, you know, Mark Twain and James Baldwin and Richard Wright. So in shaping the beginning of the book, instead of moving into sort of dry and sterile theory about morality and moral leadership, I thought it'd be important to tell some stories. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from uh, one conversation partner, uh, David Brooks, uh, about the power of story. And so I tell the story of a family, uh, intact family, that migrates from Mississippi to the south side of Chicago. And it's an interesting sort of extended family because my grandmother owned a home and in, in Chicago. And so when my parents were married, they moved in with my grandmother to, you know, save a, a nest egg so that they could purchase their own home. And so I opened the book with this vignette of being there in grandma's house, uh, both parents out working, and uh, one day uh, we heard a disturbance out in the street and uh, discovered that there were two groups of young men who were about to fight. And my grandmother, who was in the kitchen at the moment preparing the evening meal, ran out of the kitchen, out into the streets, placed her body between these two groups of young men who were about to go fisticuffs, and she said to them, no one here is going to fight today. Uh, no mother wants to receive a phone call that her son or daughter has been injured or killed. I received that phone call uh, one day when my son served in the United States Army during World War II, and he was wounded in Italy. So no mother wants that call, and no mother's going to receive that call today. And Greg, I stood there, all eight, nine years old, gasped, you know, just amazed that uh, by the courage. And these young guys looked at each other. They looked at her. They looked at each other. They looked back at her. And they began to back away. They walked away. And for me, that was 
you know, you could talk about, uh, you know, the work of anthropologists uh, imprinting. I, I, I was imprinted by moral leadership in the person of that woman. A defining moment, uh, yeah. obviously, for you in your life when you have exemplary grandparents and parents, um, you know, and, and that kind of thing is so important these days. Mm. I you know, think it is. Kids yeah. need to see what we're trying to aim them toward. Yep. And, you know, in your professorship at Emory, you, you teach this course in moral leadership. And I like your a statement about, you know, this is, I guess, you a lawyer at a party. If you want to tell that story, I thought that was good. What do you do? And he goes, do they have such a thing? Is there anything like moral and ethics? Um, I have a brother-in-law who's a big lawyer in a very big firm, a partner. And he says if there wasn't malice and greed, he wouldn't have a job. Um, <laughs> So, you know, and you state that there were leadership and ethics. It's where leadership and ethics really overlap. That's mm -hmm. what you said in the book. Yes. And you yes. teach this course. What in your estimation has happened to the leadership in our country? And what needs to transform for us to embrace what you quote as moral leadership, um, which it doesn't seem like that really exists here today. Mm. I mean, uh, okay, maybe I'm missing it, but I bet you if you ask the average person out on the street, they're wondering where the leader is. Mm. Well, it's an ex excellent observation, Greg. And in the book, as you know, I utilize the image or metaphor of Mount Rushmore. And in my classes, I ask students to identify four people whom they know who embody the qualities of moral leadership. And there I define moral leaders as women and men of integrity, courage, of imagination, who serve the common good and who invite others to join them. Those are the qualities of moral leadership. And the purpose of that little exercise is to get them thinking about people who are, number one, alive today, and number two, the four people have to be from different sectors. They can't all be clergy or teachers or social workers or artists. And so we hear stories of uh, lawyers who are moral leaders and physicians and healthcare workers, engineers and artists. And it's really inspiring. But your question was, what's happening? And I argue in the first few pages that we're really witnessing a decline in moral leadership. We're seeing more and more people behave badly and get away with it, actually get rewarded for it. Um, and so I think only now is society realizing this has a corrosive effect on all of us, and we have to draw the line. So I think we're just beginning to sort of tap the brakes and beginning to ask a different question. Shouldn't we expect more from leaders at every level of the private sector, of the public sector and government, and all of the institutions that impact our lives, from houses of worship, arts institutions, to philanthropy and across the board. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's something that needs to happen. It doesn't mean that we don't have moral leaders out there. Right. I guess right. it's almost like a tune-up. Your course, to me, would be a tune-up for everybody. Um, I like you know, that before. I, I kind of wonder who out there in which universities are actually teaching a course like this. 
I mean, I haven't done an extensive search of the universities that have moral leadership courses or have ethics courses, but you know, it's not just the young people, it's the people in society that need to come back Mm. and hear these kind of podcasts and listen to this and Mm -hmm. read books like what you have. And then the first chapter of book, you consider the process of, uh, you call it identity formation of moral leaders. Uh, you set forth a definition of moral leadership that is inclusive of, but not distinct from, moral agency. Uh, you say that not all moral agents are leaders, but all moral leaders are first moral agents. What is it in your estimation that are the three defining virtues of a good moral leader that you define in the book? Because I think, you know, look, those three virtues mm. are very, very important. Now, I, I think people will understand it as soon as you say it. The question yeah. is, how do you take this into the essence of your soul, of your being? Mm. Um, you know, it's one thing to talk about this, but it's another thing to actually be exemplary. And I, how do you help people become exemplary with this? So recall that Aristotle wrote uh, two books on the subject of ethics in particular. The one most popular, Nicomachean Ethics, is the one in which he writes uh, these incredible chapters that examine virtues, that is, the good qualities, the best qualities of a human person. And he offers us this wonderful idea of the golden mean, that is, being in the middle, in the center, the average, He says, courage, for instance, represents finding that right golden mean between recklessness on one end, extreme, and and, um, a a kind of uh, timidity on on the other. And between timidity and recklessness, he says, we find that balance of courage. And he goes through that with about 11 uh, different virtues. And I then, of course, you have uh, sacred scripture in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament that highlight certain virtues like uh, faith, righteousness, hesed, uh, tzedakah, uh, the notion of justice, of love. But I've highlighted three virtues, integrity, that sense that we live in accord with our most deeply held values. Secondly, courage, the ability and willingness to step up when others are on the sideline. And the third is imagination. In a dynamic world with technology and media, we're going to need leaders who can puzzle their way through and who can be imaginative and creative. So I highlight those three. And I think we do need to have conversations about how we inculcate. And that's the point of the identity formation that if we could get this into the conversation of what's happening in elementary schools and secondary schools and certainly by college, it might be easier to expect from young leaders uh, throughout society more examples of integrity, of decency, and of courage, and of imagination for serving the common good. I remember recently reading, and, I, and I'm sure you've read this book, Sapiens, and he speaks about the collective consciousness of our imagination, and that's really what the world ha- is become. Mm. And when you look at you know, what's occurring, you have to think if, okay, if we, 
if we got ourselves into this, we certainly can get ourselves out, but we need to bring the consciousness of the individuals to a level of the collective consciousness. And you speak about the surge in interest in moral leadership, and I'm mm -hmm. glad that's taking place. You state that moral leadership is a greening field, as you mm -hmm. call it. Um, that's the first time I'd heard that. And you cite a book that Dr. King often carried in his briefcase for mm -hmm. inspiration and wisdom called Je Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Can you speak about this with the listeners as a moral leadership and as the references that you might have for our listeners to learn more about moral leadership? You say there's the references in the book, and I went to the back of the book, and lo and behold, they're there. Um, but uh, places where they could go. Yes. Well, I, I, I really want to emphasize the um, role that Howard Thurman, that may be a name new to some of your viewers and listeners, but it's really worth learning more about this gentleman. If you know and heard of people like St. Francis of Assisi or Richard Rohr in our culture today, Howard Thurman was one of those sort of mystics who spent time in nature, who saw God in all things, and he wrote really poetically about his experience of nature and goodness in humanity, of human fallenness and, and, and how we recover, how we redeem each other. Dr. King, as a young student at Morehouse College, was reading and, and interacting, interacting with uh, Howard Thurman, who often came to the college to speak. And Howard Thurman is the one who gave the, us the wonderful metaphor of listening for the sound of the genuine. He says, every day each of us awakens and we go through life listening for the sound of the genuine in ourselves and in other people. So he's one of these people, I think, that calls us back to a life of authenticity. Uh, dear friend uh, Doug Holliday recently wrote a book, Rethinking Success, that I think is in that same genre of inviting people who have experienced a measure of success to now pivot thinking about living a life of significance, meaning, and purpose. Very well said. And I, I think we are, as a species, looking to that, to elevate to a new level of our spirituality, of our understanding, mm -hmm. of our soul's growth. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in, in essence, he he did it in nature, and he had to do it in nature because that kept him away from the throes of society so that he could get closer to God. And I think most people get closer to God when they do commune with nature. So that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that Dr. King focused on the themes of love, power, and justice, which were manifest mm -hmm. in nonviolence. But Dr. King's influences were Gandhi and Paul, is it Tillich? Tillich. Tillich. Yes. And Reinhold Niebuhr. Mm -hmm. um, you state that, these themes are central to ethical systems and the moral compass. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. What can people do to embrace mm -hmm. becoming a better leader in your estimation, mm -hmm. a better moral leader? Yes. Well, there are a number of uh, classic insights about authentic, effective leadership. Uh, one of the great gurus, Warren Bennis, has taught us a lot about the importance of knowing yourself, and this goes back to Socrates, right? Know thyself. And understanding what it is that motivates you. 
what uh, what 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 are you most attracted to? Uh, what do you need to be cautious about, given your own proclivities and weaknesses? Uh, so starting with knowing ourselves, then we move out to a clear understanding about uh, the nature of the moral life. This is where an introduction to ethics might help. Uh, this is where knowing the difference between right and wrong, and then that more difficult area of knowing when you have two competing rights, how to think through that kind of a ethical challenge or dilemma. So as moral knowledge is important, we can teach that in our schools and hopefully every kid, and I often worry that many of the young people who are, uh, who are demonstrating in the streets may or may not have that kind of foundation of moral knowledge to know what it means to respect others and to show uh, that kind of profound respect for humanity. In any case, moral knowledge. Second is the will moral will, the desire to be right, to do right, to keep your promises, to tell the truth, to forgive people who harm, who offend you. That's the will required. And then the third element, Greg, is this notion of practice. That after I have knowledge of what's right and wrong and good and bad, after I have the will to do them, third, I have to practice. And over time, Aristotle taught that that practice will harden, will become a habit. And those habits of the heart over time can become our character. And that's the kind of character formation that all of our schools, all of our houses of worship, our nonprofits, and even our businesses should be encouraging and incentivizing. So very well said. I, I, I think that, you know, look, the, the way that you put that, I think in essence is, allowing people to try and understand more about themselves, their character, their makeup, but also what are the things that I need to change? Um, As Aristotle said, those things that you said will harden and become habit uh, and then will become things that we don't even have to think about. It's just what we do, right? It's who we are. Mm -hmm. It's an essence of our being. It's part of our soul's calling to do that. And you tell a great story in the book about uh, Robert or Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. And I bet many of our listeners don't know much about the firehouse behind Cesar Chavez. It was always Cesar Chavez up telling the stories. Can you tell the story about these two who work together to support the rights of farm workers, obviously, and the various organizations that they founded in, in the process of that? But I thought it was a such an interesting story that here's this woman behind Cesar Chavez that I'm going to bet you 80, 90% of the people listening to this had no idea who she was. Yeah. I'm so glad you highlight uh, her, Greg, because of the four figures that I write more about, I allude to lots of different moral exemplars, back to your earlier observation, throughout this slender volume. But uh, the, the people, four people I continue to come back to as just touch points are, are uh, Ella Baker, who was the woman who was really helping to organize students during the Southern Civil Rights Movement. They organized something called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So Ella Baker was there behind the scenes, but she was the revered elder. Uh, then, of course, Martin Luther King, with whom she worked, uh, Cesar Chavez, but also 
Dolores Huerta, those four. And I deliberately select two women and two men. They, they, they worked together, these teams of, of, of men and women. And I'm trying to sort of very subtly suggest a kind of modeling of, uh, of, of, of adequate leadership as we look into the future. Women have to be involved. And uh, in this instance, Dolores Huerta is the only one who's still with us, still alive today. Um, anyone who loves uh, fresh fruit and vegetables or uh, a fine glass of wine will uh, want to say thank you to the labors and the sacrifices of Dolores Huerta, who was the woman behind the, what became the United Farm Workers. Uh, but there... You know, uh, her, herself, she, you know, attended college at Stockton. Um, uh, the challenges she faced in Delano, uh, working to organize grape uh, pickers in uh, Northern California. Just amazing woman. But she was also kind of a controversial figure. In, in some ways, all four of them had their controversies, which means... Uh, moral leaders don't have to be perfect people. My very first quote in the book, after the Nina Simone lyrics, uh, is by Oscar Wilde, who says, every saint has a past, every sinner has a future. And <laughs> That's a good one. That great? Yeah. <laughs> people tried to disqualify Dolores Huerta because, well, at the end of the day, she, she, you know, she was mother of 11 children, she, her two first two marriages didn't work. She cohabited with the, uh, the, the last gentleman and had a wonderful partnership. But this amazing, talented family. And people said she should not be leading a movement. She's no example. But I, I capture some of these wonderful insights. She's making sacrifices because she wants to ensure her kids will receive education. She's an advocate for immigrants and for undocumented people. And I just think it's a story and a life story that we need to recover now. And so she's there in my book. Well, a, a very exemplary moral leader, let's mm. face it. In other mm. words, the rights of those workers. Um, mm. I live in California, so I know mm. I always tell people, you know, when um, uh, Donald Trump used to kind of attack the Hispanic people coming across the border mm. and building bigger walls and, I said, nothing in this state, which were like the third largest economy, right, mm. would get done, would get done without yeah. those workers. Um, all the fruit that you just said and the vegetables that you enjoy, uh, many of them come from here and many of them are picked by those workers. Yes. Um, now, you speak about Dr. King and he was influenced by Gandhi and his beliefs. And I'm a great um a follower of Gandhi. Um, what did Dr. King incorporate into his message that was a direct influence from Gandhi? And why was this such an important realization for Dr. King? Um, obviously, Gandhi was nonviolent. Uh, Gandhi was um, an attorney before mm -hmm. he, he uh, started his movement. Um, he has such an interesting past. But what because he had gone to a lecture, Dr. King had gone to a lecture, um, mm. and you write about that. And mm. I would like for you to kind of tell the story and the influence that Gandhi's teachings had on him. Well, King had heard about Gandhi through 
a, a couple of people. Howard Thurman, by the way, whom I talked about earlier, was the first African-American to meet Gandhi face to face way back in 1936. And Thurman writes in detail about that journey throughout uh, South Asia and his meetings with, uh, with Mahatma Gandhi and other, other leaders. He returned to the U.S. and began to give lectures and talks uh, on that. Uh, also, the president of Howard University and other leaders were talking about Gandhi and what the Indian people were doing through their massive civil disobedience campaigns that were nonviolent, that respected the humanity of, of the oppressors, essentially. And um, young Martin Luther King heard a lecture and he raced back and he did what any good student does. He finds everything he can read about Gandhi and this movement and he dove in and he was just transformed. He said, I now have a way of taking the Christian teachings I've been reared in about Jesus and the love ethic and putting them into practice, back to practice. He said, I couldn't figure out a way to practice love in an environment that seemed every day someone would disrespect me or people, so many people just hated me. And King is living in an Atlanta where there are two water fountains and one has a sign white only and colored only. And King was why, why this humiliation? Why is this necessary? How do I love people who do things like this uh, so gratuitously? But Gandhi gave him a practical way to act on it, to not cooperate with a system of evil and injustice, while at the same time retaining respect for the people who were behaving badly. And uh, I think that was what transformed Martin Luther King. He later visited India, but long after um, Mahatma Gandhi had already been gone, of course, assassinated in 1948. Mm -hmm. That year, in fact, was the year King graduated from college. So he was a young fellow at that point. But just well, a sentence about the other two people you alluded to, because I didn't say something earlier. King carried a briefcase when he was, you know, during, what, 13, 14 years of his public ministry before he was assassinated in 1968. In his briefcase, he always had a Bible, and he usually had either a copy of Howard Thurman's little book, Jesus and the Disinherited, where he writes on about how poor people saw Jesus in that time, in the times of the Bible, and today. But then he also would keep a copy of the little book, Love, Power, and Justice, by the German-American, uh, yeah. Paul yeah. Tulek. That was my next question. Yes. That was written in the 60s, and yeah. you spake about the three concepts as it relates to moral leadership, because, you know, I did my own little research on Paul Tillich because I did not know who he was until mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. reading your book. Yes. And it is, he was truly prolific um, in his writings. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so King's carrying around this book of Paul Tillich's love, power and justice and this other book. And so, how does that all lead into uh, your moral leadership? Yeah, well, because I really use Paul Tillich's idea of those three concepts of love. Of love, he defines as the reuniting of those of, of, of people who, were, who are estranged. That's mm -hmm. love, is the reuniting of that which is separated. Power, the ability to, to be a cause in the world. 
to, to set in motion things that, that, that inure, that, that, that lead to life and expansion of life. That's power. Uh, and then justice is, is reestablishing a right relationship between parties. And I find those so fundamental for what leaders actually do in the world as they, as they use their influence to mobilize people to produce positive outcomes that uh, I basically incorporated Paul Tillich's system into my, uh, one of my five requirements or, or tasks, let's say it that way, of what moral leaders do in the world. And one of them is that they are, they are lifelong students of the moral life, which means they have to figure out what they think about love and power and justice and how all three of them can be abused and corrupted. Yeah, it's often said that it's the test of money and power, Um, you know, and power being a a big one. Um, Now, you speak about the roles of moral leaders, whether public intellects, prophets, preachers, and that they address, they should address five key areas. What are those areas that should be addressed when these individuals who hopefully are exemplary in our society, whether they're our preacher or they're our rabbi, mm-hmm. or whoever they are, or they're a public intellect. Um, yeah. I was just watching CBS uh, Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and they referred to this French gentleman as a, as a public intellect, and he was saying about the fall of the power of the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, all mm-hmm. the other countries now are looking at us mm-hmm. as our 200-year great rule is done. Um, and that all these other people are not looking at us in the same way that I used to. And I thought it was, it is a commentary on how the worldview has changed about what they believe the United States represents. It's almost like we have uh, put borders around ourselves and it's all about us. There isn't as much interest anymore in mm. what's going on in the rest of mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he was only one that commented on that, Robert. Yeah. Actually, someone from England, someone from France, That's somebody right. from another country, all kind of came up with the same concept. Um, you know, we're spending a lot of time just protecting ourselves and what mm-hmm. we have and not paying much attention Paris Accord included, all the rest of the things. But that, that's a commentary. But you uh, say there's five key areas, and I'd love to have you tell our listeners what those are. Well, moral leaders are students of the moral life, and they are curious about these issues like love, power, and justice. Secondly, moral leaders frame common social issues or concerns into moral issues. And I describe the uh, tasks of those who wish to communicate in that way. They're often referred to, as you said, public intellectuals. That's the way they take issues that seem ordinary. And they help people understand how being selfish today can actually be contrary, counter to our self-interest in the long run. Because uh, if we fail to help others during their time of need, let's say uh, parts of the developing world as they struggle with COVID-19, 
they will remember how we ignored them during their time of greatest need. But if we step up and say, well, we can't solve all your problems, we don't intend to, but we're gonna be here as a resource for you. That's been the beauty of the American spirit from the very beginning. We must continue that. So they frame moral issues, and I think we're, we're losing the ability to do that. They, everything's become crass and political and self-interested. Third, moral leaders seek to live exemplary moral lives. You and I have been talking about this all, all hour, but they are not daunted in the face of failure. And that's the example of you know, how people who have challenges in their lives, as King did, as Huerta, as Chavez, as all of us do. Uh, it's back to Oscar Wilde's point, you know, every saint has a past, every sinner has a future. We all have a future. And we needn't be, as long as there is a commitment to forgiveness and remorse and repair, then we should be able to go forward and to serve if people judge it to be authentic. Then I suggest that moral leaders have, in some ways, their greatest impact by investing in the next generation, or as I put it, by building enduring institutions. And so all of them, you know, Cesar Chavez, he passed away in, the, uh, in 1993, but United Farm Workers continued. Martin Luther King was dead by 1968, but the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, continued on. Uh, Ella Baker uh, passed, passed away in the mid-80s, and yet her organization. So invest in institutions that will outlive you. And then finally, the five that I highlight, moral leaders seek to live well and to die well. And that notion of dying a good death, a death of meaning and purpose, where you did all you could and did all the good you could, you enjoyed life up to the very end and had, had no regrets, and you were able to embrace every bit of your life, warts and all, that's a good, a good way to sunset. Well, those are great axioms for people to live by. You know, we all should remember those. And I'm going to tell our listeners, make sure you go get a copy of the book. There will be a link to this uh, book inside of our blog. Um, and we'll have a link uh, to Robert's uh, website as well. In wrapping up the interview, um, I, I'd like you to leave our listeners thinking about um, this moral leadership and in, in what we've discussed here and in our country and worldwide as we move forward as a society for people interested in peace, love, and pro uh, prosperity for all. What, what would you kind of tell, I mean, I know your book does a wonderful job. You give a lot of references in the book mm. or other things people can read this morning. You've exposed, I guarantee our listeners to um, other writers and other authors and other intellects that they may not have thought about um, who are obviously there. Um, but what would be if you were to kind of put a ribbon around this and say, I wrote this book because, mm. and what would the because be? I think the bottom line would be, I'm trying to do everything possible to encourage us to understand that we are interdependent, that we are connected, and that a good society, a good community, reflects that sense of profound interconnection, interdependence. And that's that wonderful language that the founding fathers and mothers created, the common good. 
and to think and live every day to promote the common good. And to do that best, I think we need leaders, moral leaders, who help remind us of that, who are examples of that. And that gets back to your wonderful observation about the Sunday morning. Uh, it, you know, international intellectuals looking at America, hoping that we'll return to that role because Correct. they miss us in that space. Yes, yes. And I hope that more people like you in universities are not only teaching the young people, but I think, uh, look, uh, many young people, while they will be leaders who are coming through these universities, um, they may not have the position of power yet that many people in mature positions who uh, mm. would come back to the university. And I want to encourage our listeners not only to get the book, but also maybe it's time to go back to a course like this mm. at Emory and actually sit in on the class, whether you get credit or not, or it's for uh, whatever, so that you, you literally could engage in this. I know there's many universities that do that, and I'm sure that Emory is one of those. You don't exclude anybody probably from wanting to come in and, and take a course, right? So uh, even if it's a, as they, we used to say, even if it's an extracurricular course, or whatever it was. <laughs> Absolutely. You, know, yes. uh, you get zero credit, but you can sit in. I'll let right. you sit in anyway. Thanks, well, right. it's been a pleasure having you on our show, Inside Personal Growth. Again, uh, I, I know I sound like a broken record maybe, but this is a great little book. Now look at this. It's, and when I say little, uh, I, I don't even know how many pages is this. This is like a... It's 162 pages, and that includes the index. So, it, but it's powerful. You, you know, word count of a book anymore is not important. It's what you take from it. Uh, and if you can take one good idea from every book, and that's what I tell my listeners, and you can start to utilize that and make that part of your soul, your DNA, that makes it good. And Robert, you are the kind of individual that exemplifies teaching people how to do that. Thank you so much for your contribution, the contribution you made through your, not only this book, but other books you've written, um, as well as your contribution by teaching young people this so that when all these old leaders go, we can replace them with good new leaders. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, thank you. You are a wise and curious and, and humane uh, colleague, and I'm so grateful for you and the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast with author Robert Franklin has been brought to you by leadership expert Peter Economy, the author of a new book entitled, Wait, I'm the Boss. Please listen to podcast number 791, where Peter and Greg speak about this essential guide for new managers. In the interview, they discuss topics such as setting goals that are smart and clear, as well as how managers can create a learning organization. These important topics and more are imperative to becoming a successful manager in today's fast-changing business environment. If you want to learn more about Peter Economy and his new book, Wait, I'm the Boss, please visit his website at www.petereconomy.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-E-C-O-N-O-M-Y. I hope you enjoyed this feature interview 
with Robert Franklin about his new book, Moral Leadership. Thanks for listening.